Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number two thirteen this morning. Uh, we're gonna. This is actually part two of our What Was Soma series. We are joined by author and musician Matthew Clark. Uh, his new book out is called Botanical Ecstasies. I have the link down below. I want to give a shout out to Rob from Psychedelic Press UK for setting this up. Really appreciate that. And uh, before we get started, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast For just $2 a month, you'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. Uh, there's tons of stuff on there. If you like you know, some of our psychedelic guests and episodes, there's a bunch of stuff on there. Uh, and just a bunch of stuff from our guests in general. So go check that out for just $2 a month. There's a whole bunch of exclusive content. And check us out on Discord. Also, we are going to be doing a giveaway for a t-shirt. So if you're interested in a Mind Escape logo t-shirt, uh, which are pretty nice t-shirts actually, uh, then go leave us a uh, review on Apple iTunes and take a screenshot of it, send it to our email, and I'll pick a winner at the end of the month. So go, please go do that if you're interested. Uh, one more thing, head on over to indrasweb.org. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. So if you want to hypothesize, speculate, theorize, it's a perfect place to do it. All sorts of different topics. And uh, go set up a profile. We are still working on trying to get that in the App Store. And, uh, yeah, without further ado, welcome on the show, Matthew. How are you? Great, thanks. Yep, yeah, all good here. Hot thanks in England at the moment. Us. Yes. So <laughs> I did, seasonally hot, but good. I did <laughs> want to point out, I, uh, I just read this, which would be, oh, you can't see the green because of the green screen, but... Uh, it's Matthew's new book, Botanical Ecstasies, and again, he is a musician. Uh, he has a band called Mahabongo. I'm going to add the link down after we're done with this. But uh, yeah, it's um, I, w- I really enjoyed your book, and I've looked into your research, and as I mentioned off-air, there's a couple theories that I entertain while going into this from just doing some research myself. One of them was cannabis, and then one of them, uh, which I liked, was yours, which was the ayahuasca analog. So how did you get into this, and how did you become interested in this topic? Well, it's a long story. I, I've always been interested in psychedelics since I was very young. And uh, then uh, in I, I was at university in the 70s. Then there was a gap when I spent a long, long time in India. I went back to university in 1998. That was to London University, to SOAS. And um, at that time, this is 98, I was periodically drinking ayahuasca. And then during the course of my MA at SOAS, um, I started looking occasionally at Vedic texts, and then I realized that this uh, Soma thing, or Soma is very important, obviously, in the Vedas. And uh, there are, at that time, there weren't so many uh, theories out there about what it could be. Of course, a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of speculative stuff. Um, and then um, I realized at one point that um, the uh, ayahuasca rituals and Vedic rituals were actually very similar in their structure. Some of the ayahuasca rituals and some Vedic rituals are very similar. And um, then um, I started looking for clues, and then I realized that uh, in the text there were actually quite a lot of clues about the potential formula for this thing. At first it was very speculative. This was, this was uh, and I just started keeping various notes on it. Uh, that was sort of starting in the late 90s. And then after, um, well, I suppose it was about... Uh, 2003 2004 around that sort of time I, I started looking at it a bit more seriously and reading a lot more and then the the theory about it them using ayahuasca analogs uh, started to make a lot of sense because uh, all the problems that previous theories had encountered if you think of it as um, multiple plant formulas it all starts fitting together like a jigsaw puzzle and uh, that as more the more i went on the more i became convinced that this was what what they were up to and uh the time I'd finished the book, I was totally convinced, and I think just about anybody. No, I haven't, so far, nobody's uh, uh, objected to the or, or found you know any any reason to doubt that that theory. So, mm. pretty pleased with that. Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, you know, again, we were talking a little bit off air, but like the li- linguistics kind of leads you into certain directions, and then you have that, you know, they're coming around. 
uh, that split off there from the Indo-European migrations, and then it splits off during the Indo-Iranian migrations, and you have some people going to northern or northwest India, some people going down into where Iran is today. Um, yeah. And that's where you have, you know, the, the Indian version, which would be the Soma and the uh, uh, Iranian or Avesta uh, version, which would be Homa. So when yeah. you look at that, they do have some crossover. I made Venn diagrams and stuff on on my computer and stuff of all the similarities and the differences between them. And there are similarities and there are differences. What would you What would you say is like the most um, the biggest crossover or the biggest um, thing that connects both Soma and Homa that you think is kind of like the smoking gun, if you will, to that they are um, one thing. Well, yeah, I think um, yeah. Well, scholars have generally agreed that the um, and this has been agreed for a long time that the roots of the Indian Vedic tradition and the Zoroastrian tradition are uh, they, they come from one one culture, if you like, and then diversified. The oldest um, parts of the Avesta, um, their, their language in Old Avestan is remarkably similar to the language of the Rig Veda. Um, I don't know any uh, Avestan at all, but if I look at trans transliterations of, of the old Veda, old Avestan stuff, I can see that it's very, very similar to uh, Vedic Sanskrit. So scholars for a long time have been pretty certain that, that they, they came from a, a common root. Um, in, in fact, the, 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 the Soma Homa, or Homa as they call it in Avestan, uh, from, in, from a linguistic point of view, it's the same root. It's just the, there's a transposition mm. of the H and the S, but it's the same stuff. Also, the ritual procedures are identical in terms of collecting bundles of stalks. You find that in the Avesta and also in the Vedas, so they collect bundles of stalks. Uh, again, there's the crushing of the stalks to extract the juice, um, and that's uh, also um, the same procedure. Mortar and pestle in the Zoroastrian world, mostly banging uh, with big stones uh, on, on wooden planks in the Vedic tradition, but also using mortar and pestle. Uh, sim similar kinds of rituals as well. Um, so, <clears throat> essentially, the, the the two cults came from the same route, but uh, diverged slightly uh, over time during in in different geographical locations. And of course, much more divergence in the modern world between the life of the Vedic Brahmins and the uh, what are now the Parsis in India, who continue the Zoroastrian tradition. But the ritual for preparation, the consumption, and uh, use of this substance is is the same in more or less the same in both traditions. Yes. Uh, um, and in terms of when you look at like, you know, what it is in, in the Rig Veda, um, it's not only, uh, an elixir or a plan, it's also a deity. Um, yeah. you know, it has, it takes on all these different, um, that's right. These meanings. So when you look at that and it's almost like poetry too, when you read it, the different, I don't even know what you call them. I, I like a stanza. I, I don't even yeah. know. But, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. But anyways, yeah. Uh, when you read it, you know, you hear things like obtaining light and like immortality and all these different yeah. things. Um, so to me, I mean, maybe it's biased because I am a big fan of psychedelics and have a history with psychedelics. But that's kind of where my mind went. It wasn't just a, a normal ephedra or opium and ephedra mix or something like some one of the other theories no. or even a psilocybin. I mean, um, so, you know, is that where you were going with that or like how did you, you know think about yeah, yeah. when you read those well there are scholars um and some very good scholars who believe that the soma was uh, nothing psychedelic it was just a stimulant but um particularly ephedra a lot of zoroastrian scholars they they believe that the homa was ephedra same some scholars of the vedic religion they also believe that but as you say if you start looking at the text there are these descriptions of light immortality near-death experiences death and rebirth um shaking trembling um in, in the uh, Avesta, they talk about uh, a, a terrible ordeal, that it can be a terrible ordeal, taking this sort of thing, but then there's a consequent rebirth afterwards. For me, all this material looks un incontrovertibly uh, like a psychedelic experience, not just uh, 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 getting high on a, on a, or a stimulant or uh, anything like that. It's mm -hmm. something very different. Also, it's the religious reverence for this uh, for this substance, for the Somme, for the Homer. Um, there's no culture that uses a or worships it as a, a deity or anything like that. They, right. they use it as a medicine, they use it as a stimulant, like coffee or something, you know. But uh, it's it's this reverence, uh, the fact that the Soma or the Homa is a deity. You know, it's, it's revered in the highest terms. 
Um, it's it's the most important thing in the ritual is this uh, this this substance. So it seems to me it's, it, the argument is there for a psychedelic rather than just an ordinary kind of uh, uh, say ordinary a uh, 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 stimulant drug experience or something like that. Yeah, and I, I didn't, mm. since you do you have experienced ayahuasca and DMT and these rituals, um, mm. I've always asked people that you know that have been to both if possible. But you know, I look at kind of what's going on is like is there some sort of archetype associated with the plant combinations because we're um you know in south america and um you know over in the western world you get these jaguar archetypes and rainbow serpents and all these different things and mm. then you you have a different analog combination with peganum harmala or different types of harmine and harmala and then possibly acacia or i think you it like Phalaris grass or Kush grass or something like that. Do you think that there are different experiences that come out of the different compounds that are, are put together, like different archetypes within the experience? Well, it's an interesting question. I don't really fully know the answer to that. Um, the um, I would say that the um, <clears throat> the uh, the ex the experience of the different types of combinations of plants obviously is slightly different. Um, my first experience with was it what you know ayahuasca uh, that was in ninety eight was that was in Holland. But in fact, the plants that I was that we, I was given all the the, the 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 ayahuasca that I was drinking at the time was made from Syrian rue and from mimosa hostilis. It wasn't made with South American plants, but it had a, it was a full ayahuasca experience. All of the experiences are slightly different. Uh, depending on the ingredients, because in South America they don't just use the two plants for the uh, the MAOIs and the DMT, right. but they also use additive plants in the mixtures. So each time it's a bit different, depending on who's made it and which plants they've used, which type of vine they've used, and so on and so on. So there's a commonality in the experiences, even though there are subtle differences with all the all the different plant combinations. Um, how they're associated with different archetypes, I think that's a more difficult question. I think a lot of that is cultural. Hmm. One thing that does seem common is um, visions, of, particularly on high-dose uh, tryptamines, is uh, visions of snakes and things like that. So ayahuascaros, they often see snakes. And then we also, in the Veda, we have this snake mythology with Vritra, this, this big cosmic serpent. Right. So there are, there are commonalities there. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, it's just something I ask. It's just because, you know, I wonder where... There's been a couple people that have written to us that have said, I think that, you know, that's where they got a lot of their architecture or culture or symbolism is from some of these experiences like in yeah. South America and stuff like that. Because they've people that have had no connection to that part of the world have seen similar things using similar yeah. um, uh, plants. But uh, yeah, and, and one thing to connect what you're, you're talking about to the the process of uh, the ritual and how they process and they, they smash the stocks or they grind them or whatever that, that goes on in the Amazon too. If you ever see the people right. beat, beating the roots uh, to open them Same. up a little bit. So yeah. Um, in terms of when you look at, have you studied more of the uh, Soma side of things or have you put an equal amount of time with the Homa side of things as well? Well, I've, I've put an equal amount of time in the, the sort of that, uh, the, uh, Western side of things I've read well there's on the Western side of things the main uh, source of information is these uh, it's a passage it's a section of the Avesta called the Hom Yasht which is uh, 9 to 11 section 9 to 11 of the of the uh, Avesta it's, it's relatively short there are quite a few translations uh, and if you look at that uh, and, and uh, in the context of, of, of it probably being a psychedelic um, again, it all fits with the with the information uh, that they present there, that, that it's an ordeal, that it's a deity, uh, that it brings immortality, that it brings light and poetic inspiration and these these kinds of things. There's also another aspect to it that um, as in South America, uh, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that uh, also in the Indian and in the Zoroastrian world, that there is the historical use of these uh, of the of the of the soma of the homa for warfare um, as in south america some of the some of the tribes they drink ayahuasca in preparation for warfare there's also a use of it for black magic as well so it's not as though it's only only used for um if you like spiritual purposes 
it does have these other other uses in these cultures. Yeah, that that is something I was actually going to ask you next. It's funny you brought that up, but um, there are yeah passages where it talks about going to war and stuff like that. So that's why I think a lot of scholars in the past have pointed to like a Fedra because you would think, oh, I'm going to get amped up and I'm going to go into battle kind mm-hmm. of a thing, as opposed to mm-hmm. you know, I mean psychedelics can be kind of potent i don't know if that would take you out of your element or what would be going on there do you think that that could have been some sort of like internal thing that happened occasionally too that people would just envision battle or war since that was something that was more prevalent in in ancient times in those areas it could be uh, that but um also it depends on dose levels with these things um as you know and, and with the use of psychedelics there's a, a huge difference between taking uh, micro mini medium large very large doses right. there's a threshold over which uh, you're incapable of doing anything as everybody knows right <laughs> it's, just, it's sitting or lying down you know it's not possible to do anything else but of course at lower dose levels uh, you can use psychedelic substances in lots of different ways and uh, so in preparation for battle in the amongst south american tribes um I don't know exactly how much they take, but I would I, I, I expect that they were drinking a relatively small dose level and uh, in, in, in these kinds of activities. Hmm. Um, and the same in India, I, when it's when it's they talk about uh, being prepared for battle. I think that uh, there, there probably were occasions when people use these things, perhaps at a lower dose level uh, in, in sort of battle frenzy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's like I said, there's a bunch of similarities uh, both have, are supposed to have medicinal properties. Both are yellow yeah. or gold or green, uh, described as being drank, as you mentioned before, battle, uh, associated with rituals. Both have entheogenic effects, you know, like I said, light and or, uh, immortality. Um, and uh, it says, I think both are grown in the mountains, or there are some passages that are uh, reference yeah. the mountains or the origin being heaven. Yeah. So... Is that something too that, um, like, how, how do they? How do you think that that's weaved into this with the heaven aspect? Do you think that's just coming from the entheogenic effects, or do you like think that was already built into their, um, the religious structure that there's you know the heaven aspect of it? I think. Well, I think that they were using, um, depending on the location and the time. Uh, that they were using a variety of plants uh, as we know well we know now that there are approximately 80 plants that contain maois there are another prop- about 80 plants that contain dmt they're common plants as well and other plants that uh, we're finding out more and more about plants that contain uh, other other uh, for example iboga or um or ibogaine in some plants um and stimulants like ephedrine in other plants so that lots of psychoactive plants and i think the uh, rituals that, that used the, the, the ayahuasca analogs, they were using different formulas depending on the time. There is, as you say, in the in the Vedas, there's this reference uh, several times to Mount Mujabat, this mountain where the one of the, at least one of the soma plants came from. In the Avesta simile, they talk about the Elburz range mount, of mountains where the, the ladies went up to collect cut the stalks. Um, it'd be intriguing to know what plant uh, or plants they were actually looking for on these mountains or collecting on these mountains. It's very obscure. It's a very ancient reference. Um, I looked quite a lot at, in my larger book, um, because but this uh, this botanical exorcist was a, if you like, it's um, a compacted version of the argument that I presented in the, the Tawny one, this book here, that was published a few years ago. There's a lot more information in that book. Uh, I just wanted to get the main argument into a more compact form. But in that one, I looked more closely at the location of Mount Mujavat, where it might be. Mm-hmm. And there are um, scholars, very good scholars have looked at this very closely. And there are about three or four contenders for where this mountain might be uh, in different places in the uh, in Pakistan or in India or in Kashmir and so on. So it's a bit obscure. But I think that um, probably one of the essential plants that they were using uh, grew mostly in the mountains, uh, and that's why they went up there to get them, mm. uh, get these these plants. But um, what that was, I I've got no idea at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I think an important aspect of this too, um, and I'll uh, after this, I want to kind of get into why you don't think it's some of the other ones. But um, this stuff would have to be like readily available, right? So it kind of seems like it'd have to either grow in the area or be close by, you know, yeah. maybe the trading routes or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
because if this was something that was done regularly, that they would have to have an abundant supply of it. So, um, how prevalent is, uh, you know, Peganum harmala or Syrian rue in that area? And how prevalent is the Phalaris grass or the Kush grass or any of those? Yeah. So, um, Peganum harmala, uh, that grows wild, uh, all along the Indus Valley, uh, which runs right through Pakistan and Punjab where the ancient Aryans were settled. They, they, um, so that plant well certainly these days it's quite common in that area so that that was uh, that was a possibility and phalaris grass or not actually phalaris but what they call kush or darba grass which is mm. a relative is everywhere in india you find it growing all over the place um it growing in parks in delhi um on the beach in goa um it's a very very common common grass um in fact it's it's common in, in most on, on most continents in most countries um, there was an article by, or in a reference by Jim DeCorn, and, he, uh, and I think the title of the article was something like, you can make ayahuasca from your garden clippings. <laughs> so you mow the lawn in North America and you've got Phalaris grass. Uh, you can actually, you know, you've got DMT when you uh, empty the grass bucket. You're right out, there for you. <laughs> DMT onto your compost patch. <laughs> so <laughs> it's very common. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's a, that's a, a, a long, a topic in itself. The, um, the, Darba grass, Kush grass. That's um, yeah. That's a, because um, without getting into all the details, some varieties contain no DMT. Some varieties contain a lot of DMT. DMT is produced in that plant uh, seasonally and also during the day. So you can test the plant in the morning, and there's no DMT. After it gets hot, there's more DMT. So, but wow. certainly um, there are there is DMT in a lot of varieties of the of the Phalaris or, or Kush grass. But it's very common in India. It's very very common. What about acacia? Because there is so many different varieties of acacia, especially you know in that area. I know Egypt has acacia trees and acacia bushes. That's right. Yeah. So, um, any is there any acacia in that specific area, or is that something that's just more uh, to the west a little bit? Well, there are there is acacia in India. Um, the, there are there are, and as I mentioned in the book, there's a, there are a few people who who believe, few scholars that believe that um, in ancient Egypt and in uh, ancient Sinai they were making concoctions from the tree of life or acacia nilotica. Unfortunately, that particular species of acacia doesn't produce any DMT. Mm. Um, so it it, it it almost certainly wasn't the tree of life that they were using. And also, I mentioned how in the Egyptian texts in their their uh, ancient texts there's no mention of the acacia nilotica or the tree of life being used for psychedelic purposes various medicinal purposes and so on right however having said that um there has been pioneering work done in australia uh where they have tested about 80 species of acacia for dmt uh some of them produce a lot some produce very little some have other toxins in the in the in the plant so acacia is certainly a source of dmt whether it was used in India, I haven't come across any evidence of that so far, but it's possible, but not so far. Yeah. Yeah, I was just curious. And obviously, yeah. um, they have, uh, if you look at like the myth of Osiris, it's very shamanic in the terms of being taken to the underworld, being disassembled, yeah. then being, being brought back and then put back together. I mean, yeah. you look at like some of the uh, Amazonian uh, indigenous peoples and their myths and some of the myths yeah. from around the world. And you see a lot of commonalities, even the cult of Demeter and Demeter being taken into the underworld and or yeah. Persephone being taken into the underworld. And then, yeah, a lot of that stuff is tied to the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, yeah. So in terms of what it, why you don't think it's other things, um, if you had to pick another candidate other than your theory, like what would you think is the top contender aside from the ayahuasca analog? Well, I, I don't think there anything else fits. Um, when it comes to mushrooms, um, you know, I've written about the mushroom thesis, um, but in uh, India, uh, amongst the Brahmins who, who are very, who follow uh, dietary rules very strictly, um, the use of mushrooms is and always has been strictly prohibited. They do not touch mushrooms. Hmm. Uh, when you go back to early texts, the Dharma Shastra, these are law texts from the early centuries BC, right from the earliest records right the way through, there's lots of examples, they, they do not touch mushrooms. It's one of the things they don't do. So I think mushrooms are out of the question. Um, also, there's the the, the, the descriptions in the text of pounding the stalks. I mean, that's in the Zoroastrian tradition and the Vedic tradition. You don't pound mushrooms. Mushrooms, if you just pound right. mushrooms, they just go into a pulp. You know, it's, right. you don't need these big stones to pound mushrooms. So yeah, they I didn't have lemon tech back then. 
<laughs> Sorry? So they didn't have lemon tech back then. No, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, so I don't think it was mushrooms of any kind. Um, um, even though there's a lot of being written about mushrooms. Um, I don't think it was a stimulant, just a stimulant, because um, the uh, effect of any stimulant, uh, whether it's coffee or a cut or anything, I mean, you, you get a hangover after a stimulant, you know, a strong dose of stimulant, you get a hangover. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Avesta or in the Vedas, they talk about a rebirth experience. Uh, you, you feel reborn. You don't feel hungover after, after the, a night of ayahuasca. You feel reborn. Right. So again, it looks to me that it's not a stimulant. Um, then, then there are, there's the um, another. Well, so many theories. Then there's the uh, blue lotus theory uh, that it was blue lotus because lotus plants in India and the Buddha and are all these lots of lotus symbolisms. But then again, um, the um, blue lotus is actually a sedative, a bit like opium. Yeah, so I was going to say, is, isn't that like a hypnotic more, like a, almost like a, what people say about Amanita muscaria, since it's not like a traditional psychedelic? It seems like I've correlated Blue Lotus in the sense that even people that have taken it that I've known haven't felt anything. Supposedly, yeah. you're supposed to have it completely fresh and not dried out and parsed out, but um, that's just what I've been told. I don't know if there's any truth to that. And I've never had an experience on it, so I can't really speak to the experience, but I know aporphine's like one of the main psychoactive... That's right. Uh, components. Yes. So I, I mean, what's your take on that whole blue lotus thing? Well, yeah, blue lotus. I mean, I, I try. I tried it um, uh, some years ago, um, and um, well, I was with a friend. So I, 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 when I, I did it with a friend who's very experienced, and so we could. So it was there was some sort of uh, reference for the for mm. our experiences. So, and the person we got the blue lotus off, she said uh, that you can either smoke it or make a tea out of it or eat it. Uh, and she said, I, whichever way you do it, it's very similar. So we did all three just to, <laughs> just to see what happened. <laughs> and uh, we noticed something. We felt very nice. You know, you feel a bit mellow and relaxed and, you know, you feel something. But it's not, uh, you know, it's not a psychedelic or anything like that. It's a, it's a sedative. You know, right. you get in this dreamy sedative world. So I don't think it's blue lotus. Though having said that, I mean, I think that all of these plants were possible additives to the um so the, the the plant formula as in south america they put a lot of additive plants in jonathan otts identified about a hundred different plants that he uses admixtures to ayahuasca and i think it was the same in ancient asia they probably in some brews they would have put maybe a bit of ephedra some blue uh would have put put uh, the equivalent of blue lotus in in so but i don't think on their own they're sufficient uh because they're they're not psychedelic they're they just they just don't do the job hmm. um yeah interesting yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so in, in the Amanita muscaria, I don't know, I don't, I know Gordon Lawson, that was his main, uh, theory. And I know, I mean, like I said, that one's kind of a mixed bag because I have heard of a few people that have had experiences, but then you have a lot of people that, you know, first of all, it is toxic because of the ibotanic acid, you have to decarboxylate yep. it to get rid of the ibotanic acid. And then it creates muscimol, which again, is kind of like a hypnotic, uh, delirium effect. Um, I don't know. That one that one doesn't really speak to me other than the fact I will point out that I believe Russian archaeologists uh dug up a tapestry that looks like two people holding an Amanita muscaria over a I, fire. I've seen that. I've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that picture. Um I think um when we're looking at uh the ancient world and plants and these sorts of things, I think um we have to be very cautious about visual imagery. Mm. You know, uh, that something looks like something. You know, <laughs> yeah, it right. looks like a mushroom, maybe, you know, <laughs> but, but um, uh, a lot of plants also look, have a similar, other plants have a form similar to mushroom. I, I think it's a, it's hard to know also what the context of all these, these mm -hmm. pictures are. Um, so I think there's a rug. I think there's a, the, there's a picture of this rug with two yeah. people holding this thing that looks like a mushroom. I mean, I just, I'm just open. I, I just don't know what that, sure. what that means. But I think it's it's we have to be careful about jumping to conclusions just because we've seen something that looks like a mushroom on a some sort of art. We think, ah, they're all taking mushrooms because <laughs> right. I don't think there's necessarily a connection between the two things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the with the mushrooms, I mean, uh, you know, it was um, Gordon Wasson. He was looking. He he had he had a, a half a dozen uh, potential plants in mind when he was writing his Soma book. And um, he wrote to various people about these various plants he thought might be with Soma and was sort of working through a various various ideas. 
He then started working with Wendy Doniger in Chicago, who was a Sanskritist. And she was the person that just happened to mention uh, Fly Agaric or Amanita Muscaria. He didn't know anything about it. Then immediately he said, oh, that's it. Hmm. But she said, no, 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 it's not. She remained skeptical till the end of uh, end of their relationship, you know, end of their collaboration for decades. You know, right. she said she didn't believe it. But he got fired up with this Fly Garrick idea and then he just went with it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so pioneering work for sure on the psychedelic implications that I mentioned in the book. I mean, everybody credits him with the, the idea of a psychedelic being involved in ancient religion. But the I, I the more I looked into it, the more I was absolutely certain they are not they were not doing fly garrick mushrooms in ancient era, apart from who knows, the odd individual. I'm not saying there was an individual use of these things, but right. as a ritual as as a as a you know a continuous ritual procedure, I don't think that they were they were doing that. They were using fly garrick. Um also, in my larger book, in the Tawny one, there are a couple of chapters on the Eleusian Mysteries. Um, and I, I think it was the same thing, the same formula that was used in, in or similar formula that was used in the ancient Greek, Greco-Roman world for the mystery cults. Um, there's all the sort of arguments in there about that. But there are also some scholars that also think that in, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they were using in the mystery cults, they were using fly garrick mushrooms or other kinds of mushrooms. But as somebody pointed out, as a scholar pointed out, I mean, there isn't a single trace of a reference in any Greco-Roman work about work about people going out to collect lots of mushrooms. Um, you know, right. they've been doing that. There'd be some record of people going out collecting mushrooms, but there isn't. Uh, similarly, in India, they talk about going out and cutting the stalks and collecting the stalks, but there's no reference to mushrooms. So one of the arguments mm. that people make is that it's all totally secret and that the mushrooms are all hidden. But the fact is that uh, they weren't hiding the use of other plants. So why would they hide the use of mushrooms if they were actually using mushrooms? So I, right. I don't think they were. Yeah, I think Gordon mm. Wasson's uh, biggest or best contrib uh, contribution was probably his work with the Mesoamerican sacred mushroom yeah. rituals and Maria Sabina and all, Indeed. all, all Indeed. that stuff yeah. over there. Um, yeah, yeah. In terms of, you know, the whole uh, Amanita Mascara thing too, it's so... Uh, it's so bright and colorful and, uh, and, you know, it's just, if you're creating, you know, imagery or, you know, writing, yeah, into, I pretty. think you, you would describe that. Like it's, it's kind of unforgettable. It's not like some mundane green or, you know, brown yeah. plant or something like that. It's like, you know, you, you, that speaks to you, that archetype is in all these, uh, uh, it's all imagery and associated with, you know, you see it on like cards and books and even, you know, mm -hmm. children's books and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that you would you would notice that if that was being uh, descriptive or described, excuse me, uh, in the ancient world. Um, yeah. And what about cannabis? So we had Chris Bennett on. I'm sure I think yeah. you've probably had contact with Chris. He's he's a uh, he's a really good I researcher. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do see a lot of his points for the whole cannabis thing, and I do agree with some of them. And, and you could look at it like the stem or the stalk being pressed. And um, anybody that's familiar with edible cannabis, it is pretty psychedelic. Uh, maybe not as Absolutely. obviously psychedelic psychedelic as a um, DMT trip or possibly something else, but it, it does have those components. Um, do you think since there is proof that that was being, you know, uh, traded and you know moved around in the ancient world that there is that was probably implemented at some point or yep i'm aware of chris's work on this we don't agree um on 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 the on this summer thing um the i think i think the first point is that i don't believe that cannabis on its own is sufficient for um uh, an entheogenic ritual um if we if we look at cultures that use cannabis which is all over the world you know, uh, in, in all over the world, there's cannabis culture, but um, uh, the, the, those that, that go, it, it's, it, it's the it's the capacity of a substance to go through some sort of barrier into that other world where you are really in that other world. You know? Right. And, and I think with cannabis, of course, everybody at some point in their life, if they use cannabis, have had, had a kind of psychedelic experience. But usually that's a rare event under unusual circumstances. It's not something that you regularly induce. Uh, I mean, people smoke, you know, 
endlessly, but without uh, oh, going in, you don't in need the to white tell light us. of the Godhead. You know, <laughs> it'd be rather inconvenient on a Friday night if that happened. Yeah, maybe in, co- maybe in combination with meditation, I would say, with like edibles or something like that. But, not, you know, I, I, I rarely, I mean, maybe some of the earliest times, like you're saying, like mm-hmm. rare or like one of the first couple times. Yeah, it's, it's interesting so... how the first times really had a different effect as, as you start smoking more and your brain gets more saturated with it. It's not the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with with uh, tryptamines, I mean, it's reliable. You can do tryptamines every week and every week, you know, you, uh, if you take a dose of ayahuasca, I mean, there's, you know, a sufficient dose of ayahuasca even every, every week or two, every whatever a month. I mean, it, it still does it 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. But uh, cannabis, um, everybody would probably like it to do more. But as you say, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, I don't think it's sufficiently potent. And also, I think the other big argument, um, which is it would be difficult to deal with in a short space, but very there's very very few references to cannabis before about a thousand ad that's when it starts in india that's the first first mention in medical text is about a thousand ad um and then before that there really are only two or three references in any literature to cannabis and that's even a bit dubious you know Mm. so it's not something that was widespread at all in the ancient world in terms of its use. I it might you, have grown everywhere, but there's, there's, there are virtually no references to it. So uh, I know you mentioned the Tree of Life earlier. It does look like, to me at least, if you look at like some of the Assyrian reliefs and, and different yeah. reliefs, the, the Tree of Life does look like a cannabis plant. I mean, especially when they're holding those. I don't know what those are. People say they're pine cones. It looks like a, a, a cola or a nug to me, but yeah. know, it's just my perception of it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I on I've seen that Assyrian stuff and looked at. I mean, I just with with with, with I just really don't know about that. I've not gone to it, uh, you know, sufficiently uh, or, or have sufficient information to make a sort of judgment about that. Um, just only on the Indian side of things. Right. Um, yeah, that 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 it certainly uh, it, it appears around a thousand A.D. in the medical text, and once it started, it 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 doesn't. Uh, you know, it, it it's, it's a roller coaster of cannabis in India. Sure. It was, cannabis use was really introduced into India in the 13th century by Kalandar Sufis from Central Asia who came into India in their thousands. They brought cannabis culture to India. That's when it really starts, about the 12th, 13th century. Before that, it's, it's very hard to find. I mean, just very, very, very few references to cannabis at all. And so, uh, yeah. And, um, and as I say, it's, um, I think it was possibly an ingredient to uh, uh, potions. But I think the, the big thing against it is that... Um, um, Cannabis has uh, many names in Sanskrit, uh, but not Soma. Um, it's not, never called Soma. Uh, if you look in the medical text, the Materia Medica, you've got about 20 plants called Soma, but not, they're, none of them are cannabis. They're all diff- they're different plants, but cannabis is not a plant called Soma. Right. They so weren't you, hiding what Soma was. It's, so, you know, in the Materia Medica, you see all these plants called Soma or Amrita. They, they have that name. You know, so then we see those are the plants they were using. If they were using cannabis for soma, you'd think that cannabis, one of its names would be as soma. So, and, and you point that out in terms of like what I was talking about before, like having like an abundance of this. So they probably mm. would have been aware of a bunch of different plants that contain the dimethyltryptamine to mix with the MAOI. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, mm. in, in terms of when you look at um, those two countries, you know, you look at like... Um, India and Iran, they seem to be pretty against drugs for the most. I don't know their laws or anything like that, but it just seems like, with the culture, it seems like they're kind of against this stuff. Is there is that is that the case, or this is just my perception based on stuff I've seen and research? Well, um, of course, there's the modern world, which is very different to the ancient world. No, that's what I'm talking. I'm talking about the modern world. I'm saying like the perspective of why these might be kind of outlawed or illegal now when they had such a. his historical significance or just significance in, in relation to those uh, religions, that kind of a thing? Yeah, well, um, in in recent times, there's been a change. I mean, you, I don't know if you know, but uh, India and Nepal just decriminalized cannabis for medical and industrial purposes. Oh, so right. that's yeah, about that's time. Just, just this year that happened. There's been a research in Iran. There's been a resurgence in uh, cannabis use, ca- uh, social cannabis use. And in fact, I just I've been writing articles on cannabis recently, and I just published one on the situation in Iran. And uh, they've they've gone full circle there, really. So they are now the 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 imams are considering they haven't decided yet whether to actually regulate recreational cannabis in Iran. It would be the first Muslim country to do so were that to happen. 
Um, Lebanon also, uh, last year, they decriminalized the medical industrial use of cannabis. That was the first Muslim country to do so. So th- th- those countries are are, are changing. Mm. And, and in India, um, cannabis has only been uh, illegal since 1986. You know, it's made illegal in 1986, and uh, so it hasn't been illegal that long. Before 1986, you could just go into a shop and buy it. You know, it, was, it wasn't mm. um, prohibited at all. Yeah. And you could buy any amount of it. You could go into a country shop and buy 100 kilos if you wanted to. <laughs> so Interesting. Just, yeah. Um, so, uh, cool. So uh, in terms of when you look at, uh, again, you're, you're mentioning now kind of the tides are turning. It kind of seems like that's the case in a lot of places, especially the U.S., where you have this reform on the, you know, the war of drugs that really didn't work out for yeah. anybody. And then you look at like Portugal and there's a lot of models out there for why uh, that shouldn't be the case or shouldn't have been the yeah. case to begin with. And actually we probably have, uh, you know, probably held ourselves back from a lot of research associated with this stuff uh, that could have been yeah. going on since the seventies when they outlawed a lot of the stuff. Um, right, yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's interesting. Um, is there any other, because I know I've had people, because we posted, you know, the first episode that we did on what was some, and there's people saying that it was sugar because sugar was so new, you know, sugar cane. There's a lot of like weird things that popped up too. Is there any anything else that you think that could have been a possibility that is not really, you know, we again, we think of mushrooms or we think of, you know, uh, phenethylamines like or mescaline isn't really found in that part of the world. So you wouldn't really consider that. But is there anything mm-hmm. else that's natural that grows that I've even heard people say like non psychoactive succulents were used or things like that? Um, yeah. Um, in, in Gordon Watson's book, uh, which I've seen you know, that's published in first published in 1986. Wendy Doniger she wrote a, a large chapter on the botanical candidates for uh, soma, and there are dozens in there. there are, uh, that was sort of going back over the last 250 years. There have been dozens and dozens and dozens of plants and substances proposed as soma, including wild rhubarb, and you know, <laughs> goes on and on and on. Lots of different plants, um, but um, uh, and also lots of alcoholic uh, preparations. They were proposed as well. Fermented beer, fermented. Uh, fruits of various kinds, um, but um, we know a lot more about psychedelics than we did in 1968, and uh, also we're much more aware of different cultures that use these things, particularly in South America. And so, in terms of candidates, I think the um, most fruitful line of research is just to look at all the plants that are featured in the texts, and to try. The problem is identifying the plants because in these in the Sanskrit text, like in the Vedas and so on, you have um, many plants mentioned by name, but the botanical identification of these plants is extremely tricky. Um, just for example, there's one tree called there's one yeah a tree called Karanja, but it has over forty different botanical identifications. Nobody's really sure what it is. Right. <laughs> so mm. in the text we have lots of lots of plants mentioned, um, and the botanical identifications of these plants are very uncertain and i think but it, we, obviously over time we, we're making progress in identifying these things from various local clues or or whatever and i think that's probably the most fruitful line of research in terms of identifying plants that they might have used i i did a little bit of that you know um, in terms of identifying plants that might possibly have been used um one is um galangal which is fragrant ginger, which is mm. used in Chinese cooking and uh, also available in the supermarkets here. I mean, that that uh, that ginger is chock full of MAOIs. Mm. Uh, it's got more MAOIs in there than you get in pres- some prescription drugs. Uh, now, that grows in India. Um, it's identified in by modern translators of the texts as um, Costa Speciosa is one of them. Uh, and there's another identification, too. But if you consider that, it, that another one of the identifications is 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 um, fragrant ginger, galangal, and it and I think that's correct because or probable because of the uh, very rich MAOI properties of that of that species of ginger. So that's just one example. That uh, that plant uh, that uh, galangal plant is praised in the Atharva Veda in the highest terms, like the soma. Uh, it says that it's you know it's a holy plant. It brings immortality and so on and so on. All the same kind of enthusiastic language that you find for soma is also addressed to this um, other other plant. And mm. so I think uh, gradually 
through uh, working on the different names and in, in, in the text, uh, we can probably identify more of the plants that they were actually using in their concoctions. And as I say, I don't think that soma was ever one plant. I think that's been the thing that's been uh, misleading people right from the beginning. The right. thing is always that soma is one plant. No, soma means I think it means something like psychedelic, and it means psychedelic juice and psychedelic juice concoction. In other words, they put lots of plants together. And then it's the combination of plants that has this uh, uh, very powerful effect. Um, it's the synergy of lots of different plants together, not just the MAOIs and the DMT, but also other booster plants that even with a small amount of MAOI, small amount of DMT, you get booster plants that enhance the, the effect of these uh, combinations. Mm. And I think that's, that's, that's the key to the uh, understanding of what SOMA was. It's the multiple plant formulas. I mentioned in the book how also when we're these days, you know, when we're looking for um, an effective drug, uh, we, we find one plant and then out of that one plant, we take one chemical and that's what you get as your medicine. You know, the, the, the extracted chemical out of one plant. It was very it's very, very different in traditional cultures still these days or uh, in the ancient world. In traditional cultures, normally the, the, the sort of local doctor, he doesn't give you one plant. He gives you a plant combination five, six, 10, 30, 40, 50 plants in combination. It's the same in Chinese medicine often as well. Many medical systems, they they use plant combinations. And I think that's the key to understanding what this soma was. It was, it was never a single plant. Uh, it was always a multiple plant formula that, mm. that, yeah, that did the trick, sufficiently potent to push you through the barrier into that, into that other kind of world. Yeah, yeah you just answered my question. <laughs> I was just gonna ask that. Um, yeah, you have similar thoughts to me. On, I mean, as I mentioned off air, I have a little bit of a different take where you're focusing on the concoction. Uh, I think it just means more of like psychedelic based on everything I've seen and read. But, like, yeah. uh, it, but not even in specific terms of like, um, like you said, that you're all these different combinations. I think more of just in terms of just a general association with the ritual. I think it's more heavy on the ritual aspect of it. And then you can add in whatever psycho and it probably changed. There was probably times where people lost the knowledge of some plants and gained knowledge of other plants. And it kind of just morphed in and out, you know, with time and how things work. I think that's exactly the case. Yeah. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. And and you're, you're going back, you reference uh, Schwartz and uh, Flattery's uh, theory initially with the uh, uh, Syrian rue as being, but they thought that it was just the Syrian rue, right? They didn't That's have, right, yeah. they didn't have any like combination with it. No, they didn't. Um, um, Martin, in, I met, there's a little note in the, in the, in the, um, in the book there that I, I was contacted by Martin Schwartz, the, you know, one of the authors of that book. Right. Uh, he contacted me some months ago uh, and I read some of his stuff. And now he, he's now suggesting that um, the, uh, he he thinks that the homa was a um, combination of ephedra and Syrian rue, hmm. but it's also a, I think there's a note in the book somewhere that actually that combination is not very satisfactory. Um, so yeah, and, would that even know, do anything? Because I mean, obviously, oh, we know but... it's dangerous. It's the it's the so it's the ephedra ephedra combined with an MAO is it can be uh, can be risky. Yeah. What about that aspect of it too, which would be taking something. Again, I don't necessarily think this, but something like an Amanita muscaria where it does have ibotanic acid and it can make you sick or maybe even delusional to the point where you're almost having like a near-death experience and that would induce yeah. this. Because there are, it does, some of the passages do seem like an NDE or near, which you could get off of, uh, you know, uh, I guess dimethyltryptamine, but usually you see that more with like 5-MeO now and people smoking it, not necessarily ingesting it. Yeah. Yeah, so but with the, I think I say with the with the um, mushrooms, I mean, you know, Gordon Wasson, he tried them quite a few times in the mid sixties. Um, he he he, I mean, unlike his experiences with uh, psilocybin, where he had these uh, mystical experiences with psilocybin in first in Mexico and then in New York, he was he had a few sessions in New York with some of his friends. I think Robert Graves was involved in one of them, and they had mystical experiences. But when he tried to fly Garrick. He never had a good experience. He either felt he was either sick or fell asleep. He 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 had a he didn't enjoy it at all. Mm. <laughs> no mystical experience for Boston right. himself. Um, Terence McKenna, of course, another uh, uh, extremophile. <laughs> um, he also was was um, very you know he tried fly Garrick and also he just got nausea and stomach cramps and mm. so then there are people saying okay with fly Garrick um, 
uh, I think Kevin Feeney, he's written about this, you know, if you dry the mushrooms and prepare them, you know, you can reduce the toxicity and so on and so on. Uh, I, I'm sure that's the case. But um, if you look at the big picture, uh, uh, they, they weren't, they say that mushrooms were prohibited. There's no evidence of them using mushrooms. There's no mention right. in the text using mushrooms. And also there's this pounding thing. There's, there are a lot of things against it, uh, uh, against the use of mushrooms. Also, I, mean, I, I took fly agaric once. Um, it's many, many years ago. Uh, also, I, I, it was it was quite interesting, but also I, it, it was a sort of drunken aspect to it. You know, you feel all disorientated and you're all... You know, you, you know, you're all over the place. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, it doesn't seem to me a thing that's suitable for conducting a ritual. Whereas, if you look at the rituals conducted, say, by the Santo Daime Church, the uh, ayahuasca church in South America, they they drink the ayahuasca, but they maintain a, a fully concentrated ritual for uh, six, eight, ten hours. You know, mm. even though they're super, uh, you know, super intoxicated on on the ayahuasca. Um, they keep the, they keep the rituals to get. They might have to go off and vomit occasionally, but right. <laughs> they keep the rituals going. So it's it's consistent with using you, uh, the the Santa Dime use of it shows that ayahuasca can be used in these complex rituals uh, in, in, in over a long period of time. Whereas I think you'd have great difficulty um, uh, on on fly agaric actually, um, yeah, standing and conducting a ritual, singing the hymns. I mean, you, maybe you could. Right. <laughs> I think it would be, you know it's much. I think it'd be much more tricky, and it's much more debilitating generally. Right. Uh, I'm an than some of the other tryptamines. So well, I guess that would make sense too. You can't really perform a ritual if you're having a near death experience. Um, <laughs> what about? I've heard people even discuss the possibility of like psilocybin in the sense that like you know the the sacred cow. And then you've obviously, well, if anybody knows, yeah. uh, they don't know, uh, you know, psilocybin grows out of cow patties. So, yeah. um, and I don't know if that's the case there per se, I guess, I don't, you know, different, that's how it is here in the U S but, uh, yeah, I think that that's uh, something I've heard. Is there, have you heard of anybody associating that or is that just something that people like to speculate on? Well, there is use of there is psilocybin uh, use in India, in 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 Tamil, in the northern Tamil around Kodi Canal in the mountains. There, uh, they a lot of uh, psilocybin mushrooms grow there. Uh, they work very well. Um, I found uh, psilocybin mushrooms at four thousand over four thousand meters in eastern Tibet. Wow! And and at them there. And uh, oh, arrived in the time, Valley huh? tripping <laughs> on those mushrooms. <laughs> so they they work. They go there, uh, and 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 so yeah. And uh, in the local people in Tamil, they they use those mushrooms. Some lo local people use those mushrooms, and and people I used to know used to go down and collect those mushrooms, and we used to we used to have those things. Um, so it's not common in India to use mushrooms. I mean that subculture in northern tamil isn't sort of mainstream culture of india where they where they don't touch mushrooms at all also it's not brahmins it's just local people who are right. collecting the mushrooms and it's the brahmins who conduct the soma rituals it's only them that do that nobody else does it we mentioned so, diet too and one of our friends practices vedanta i know he's pretty strict about you know his diet i don't know if he still is but you know for a while he's a vegetarian I yeah think. and i think that there's certain things that you like you mentioned you don't eat that are considered you know through you know the ayurveda or the you know the medicinal things yeah. that they believe in 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 you know their history with that so mm. um yeah so i mean in terms of like Going forward, have you thought about maybe even trying to do like a ritual with the stuff that's found around there or have you done that or, you know, is that something that uh, I think I mentioned, I think I heard you talk, I don't know if it was on YouTube about some sort of Sufi ceremony that somebody uh, had participated in, but is that something that you would participate in in the future? Oh, well, yeah, um, um, the, um, there's a very interesting um, thing that yeah, in northern Iran, um, there are these Kalandar Sufis. These are the super radical Sufis, this Kalandar movement. Those are the people that brought cannabis culture to India, I believe, in 12th, 13th century. Um, and this scholar I met, I, I believe is very reliable, um, he was invited to a ritual in northern Iran, uh, very, very close to the um, area where I speculate the Soma cult came from, which is like that sort of Turkmenistan area. And he part, he's a very experienced Iwaskero. Uh, he's also fluent in Persian and Arabic and so on. And he participated in a, in a ritual with these Kalandar Sufis, and it was a full-on ayahuasca experience. Um, he was invited to the ceremony uh, on condition that he asked no questions at all. It was totally secret. 
Uh, so I respect that. I wouldn't say his name or where it sure, was or anything, yeah. but yeah. But um, the only clue that he got from that, that he saw around the temple, there were, were um, Syrian rue plants growing. So mm. he thought, ah, I bet that, you know, that's one of the ingredients, the Syrian rue. Um, more exciting than that, actually, is in that very last, very short little section of my botanical ecstasies book, there's this recent discovery of a soma cult in Bengal. Mm. And I think that's very exciting. Yeah. Um, because I wasn't, I, I hadn't found any yeah, you have a chapter in your new book. Cult in, yeah. So, so it's all, it is still, it still goes on. It still persists in India. And I think I'm, I mentioned in there that I think the most fruitful line of inquiry for getting more information about the use of soma formulas uh, in say the medieval period and up to now is to look through tantras. Mm. I just examined one tantra, the Kulnarava tantra, and uh, I put a formula in there. Who knows what that, that formula does, but um, there's there are thousands and thousands of tantras, and it'd be a question of going carefully through those texts to try and find multiple plant formulas mentioned in the tantras, and I think that might give more clues mm. as to the plants that were or are, be, are being used these days. Um, that cult in um, Bengal I mentioned, um, there, uh, the, uh, the gentleman that put me onto all that, he was meant to return to Bengal to get more information about the formulas, but of course we've been in lockdown for the last couple of years, so it's all been... Uh, none of that's happened yet, but I believe that uh, more progress will be made identifying the plants that they use in Bengal, um, and that might give us further clues as to some of the plants they used in the um, in the ancient world too. Yeah, but there's um, a lot to find out. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I do want to wrap it up here before we do our little Patreon segment before we get you sure. out of here. Um, but yeah, I mean you your super wealth of knowledge on the subject and that everybody should definitely check out your book, uh, botanical ecstasies. And, uh, yeah, I, I just think that, um, like I said, I think you have a very good case for, uh, what Soma was based on everything I've seen. Like I said, there's a lot of contenders, but there's only a couple in my, my book that could, you know, even really apply. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of evidence to point to the fact that uh, what you're saying right now. So everybody should check out his book. I have the link down below. Um, and uh, he's a musician, as I mentioned. So I'll put a link after we're done to his uh, band Mahabongo. And uh, what kind of music is it? It's sort of um, pop jazz. Okay. Yeah, pop jazz. I'll see yeah, if I can well. put a link in immediately. What do you What do you play? I play guitar and write songs. Okay. Um, I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, uh, I, I had a gap. I, I was doing quite a bit, and then I stopped uh, in the sort of mid '90s and went much more into academia. But then in 2008, I started recording again and started making records again, and uh, that's an ongoing thing. We've ju we're just about to finish another album. I'm very excited about this new one. Uh, it's gone up, I think, several notches in terms of production. It's called Somras. Okay. Um, there's a vi there's a video on YouTube which we shot in India a couple of years ago. We're very pleased with that. It's called the uh, it's called Kashti. So if you have a Google Mahabongo and Kashti K A S H T I, there's a little video there of one of the songs, and we've got four songs in Hindi on the album, and it's sort of Indian themed thing, sort of jazz, pop jazz, but this one with a sort of it's it's a sort of I call it sort of um, Indo Latino. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's sort of Indian elements and sort of South American elements as well. So. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to check yeah. it out. Excited to hear this. Yes. Yeah. Um, and for our Patreon, if anybody's interested, I will upload that later with uh, Matthew. And I think what we'll be talking about is probably some of the more uh, ritual aspects of it. Maybe even get into the Eleusinian mysteries and some of the other mystery traditions and how they might relate to this. So if you're interested, yeah. head, head on over to our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/MindEscapePodcast. Again, for just two dollars a month, you'll gain access to this exclusive content. Uh, and one more time before we get out of here, head on over to indrasweb.org. It is live. This is the social media platform we created to connect open minds uh, on these topics that we discuss on the show and a bunch of other topics as well. So go set up a profile. And, uh, yeah, we're working on getting that in the App Store. But uh, listen, Matthew, thank you so much. And uh, right. we'll, have, we'll have to get you back on again in the future. And uh, appreciate your work and look forward to anything you produce in the future. And, uh, yeah, everybody go check out his book. Again, I have the link down below. Thank you very much for having me on there. I'll just put a link to the music on, uh, on, uh, in the chat there. Okay. And, uh, great. 
Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Everybody stay safe out there. We love everybody and uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Thank you very much. Okay, everybody. Cheerio. Oh, actually, I wanted to, one more thing. I wanted to give a shout yep. out to Taz. You're awesome. Thank you. New Patreon member. And shout out to Carrie or Kari. Uh, new Patreon members, we love you. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome. So, peace. Peace.